like to thank the Silix Nation for welcoming us to their traditional lands. This podcast in no way represents every voice in the LGBTQ2S plus community, and we endeavor to grow in the knowledge to help us respect as many voices as we can. This podcast is also not for everyone. If you are sensitive to topics of race, sexuality, strong language, or strong attitudes, this podcast is not for you. It is intended for audiences over the age of 15 and not for consumption at work. Opinions expressed are of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the show or its creators. However, respecting differing opinions does not include hate speech of any kind. My name is Lee, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm a cisgendered gay male of Caucasian descent. And I'm Kyler, I'm a personal trainer, and I'll be speaking towards that today. I'm Keisha, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a belly dance instructor, and um, also sit as director for In the Name of Love. Hi, my name's Jennifer, I go by she, her, I am a pansexual, I am a clinical counselor and a business owner in the community. Awesome. Thank you. Today's topic, we're going to be talking about our bodies and mirror, mirror, and how we look at, at our bodies in the LGBTQ2 plus community. In 2019, the Canadian Standing Committee on Health declared that while health inequities are experienced differently by each member of the LGBTQ2S plus community, in general, these communities are more likely than heterosexual Canadians to develop mental health disorders, have suicidal thoughts, and attempt suicide. An analysis of the LGBTQ2S plus population by the 2013 study Rethinking LGBTQS Plus Health states the information that is available for or about those in the LGBTQ2S plus community is often flawed or inaccurate. Health promotion initiates that focus on entire populations tend to frame questions and answers in a heteronormative way that alienates and excludes non-heterosexuals from competent and reliable health care. Understanding the complexities of the LGBTQ2S plus experience of body weights, dieting, physical activity is crucial to the formation of informed, culturally competent approaches to health care. And this is what it's like to live under the pink triangle. So Big, heavy stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. This is a heavy show. It's going to be lots of how we think of our bodies, how we go through life, how we go through society, how people we think look at us or how we look at ourselves. And, and it each- has a, in our society, I find that there's a lot of discussion about judging of our bodies, but very little discussion about body confidence or how it is to love and grow that mental picture of our bodies. Well, from my from my standpoint, I've always had a hard time understanding the differences of what these. Some of them, is it a mental disorder? Is it uh, is is body dysmorphia a, a mental disorder, or is it a medical thing? Or well, actually, Lee, funny, I do have some definitions on this from the Mayo Clinic. Body dysmorphic disorder, actually, it's a mental health disorder in which you can't stop thinking about one or more uh, perceived defects or flaws in your appearance, a flaw that may appear small or minor to others. As well, many feel so ashamed, embarrassed, and anxious that you may avoid social situations. That's different than gender dysphoria, which is also a disorder, and that is about the condition of feeling one's 
own emotional and psychological ID as male or female to be opposite of one's biological sex. So those are the clinical definitions, but let's actually talk about what that means. Let's kind of break it down for what that means. So we're talking body dysmorphia is a way of how we look at our bodies and the things that we may or may not like that are hyper sensualized within our own minds or hyper analyzed within our own minds or no? Yeah, it's more hyper analyzed and centralized. It's um, basically where you see a perceived flaw. It's never a positive. So you see a perceived flaw and you... Like my boobs. Say like your boobs. Yeah. And say you felt they were too small or too big. They are not too small. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly. Well, then you wouldn't suffer from body dysmorphia because you may be uncomfortable with it, but it gets to the point where it interferes with your everyday functioning. So what that to some degree it does are you for able, myself. Are you able to leave the house? I'm able to leave my house to go to the gym. <laughs> I'm so, able to leave my house for sure. Let's let's talk about that more later. But let's talk about the difference between body dysmorphia, gender dysphoria, and just a general discontent about our bodies. So gender dysphoria is where we actually have a mix-up sometimes in the brain. And when the brain has begun its development, so what happens is there is we have the brain of, say, a male or female and a different body. And so you're actually living trapped, the feeling of being trapped in a different body. Right. And that's, and, yes. and is, that, yep. is that clinically mostly trans people that, are, that, that undergo uh, gender dysphoria? That's an interesting question. I don't think so, but it could be. Um, I don't. I don't have the the information well, on that. But in my own opinion, I think isn't there like a continuum of yes. that male female brain within everybody, and it's really what percentage is yours? Well, this is actually um, where when the baby is being developed at the fetal stage, there's a certain stage where the brain gets an influx of hormones which tells the brain what the sex or gender is of the baby. And if those hormones get to be too much, then that's when you have this. So what happens is it's actually a brain chemical thing. Your brain is actually in the wrong body. I totally thought all my life I was the only one that thought this way. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, like, you know. I hated it. Exactly, because you look in the mirror and you don't belong in that body. Well, it's From like you're trapped chemistry. in a bamboo cage. Like it's like yeah. you're trapped inside your own body in in a in a in a cage for years that you think you're by yourself in. Yes. And that is terrifying to me. So I don't have all a lot of information on body or gender dysphoria. But, but body, I think but body uh, dysmorphic really applies to, I think, everybody, every human because of our marketing and the way that society is structured to for towards a control paradigm. And so the more that we are fractured about our own bodies, our own selves, it is easier to be fractured with our families and our other relationships that extenuate out. Oh, I agree. And yeah. so I think this is kind of just years and years of being told we're not worthy and actually believing it and becoming de-evolutionized, but, de-evolved. 
we in our in our separate professions kind of see uh, body dysmorphia on a regular basis. Kyla, you're a personal trainer. Keisha, you're a belly dance instructor, and you teach dance, and you teach people of um, of all kinds of all body shapes, and you must deal with it on a regular basis. I deal with. I definitely. I deal with self-consciousness uh, with physical appearance. Absolutely. I don't know if I deal with body dysmorphia specifically on a regular basis because body dysmorphia is where you actually see your body oftentimes differently mm-hmm. than what your body actually is. So it's not it's not the same as me looking in the mirror and feeling self-conscious about how I look. It's it's kind of bigger than that. So lots mm-hmm. of people who struggle with eating disorders um, and and ha- who have long-term mental health problems because of body dysmorphia, that's kind of a different thing than what I deal with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Of course, I do deal with people who have those thoughts and body dysmorphia, but it's not as regular for me than to deal with somebody who's just kind of struggling with self-confidence and body image two different things the line there is so fine to me i find that for for me even though how i look at my body doesn't inhibit how i go through life it definitely inhibits how i shape my day and it definitely inhibits how i i live my life because i eat very specifically because being a gay male, being an older gay male, especially the pressure for us to have the perfect abs, perfect butt, perfect bodies, perfect everything so that we can get laid is enormous. And I sit under this pressure as I age more and I start to age out of the gay community, which is what's happening is you get to a certain age and you age out of of the the acceptable gay community because old people don't fuck apparently. So, so you're challenged with a lot of things that I think most women are challenged with that. Uh, sorry, straight men, women. Well, almost everybody. Yeah. Are they all concerned about to some degree how they look? I, th- I think, know? I think to some degree. I- yeah. I mean, I think my point was, I think that that is different than body dysmorphia. And so I, I want to be clear about those two different things. Um, right. Because those are like those are societal pressures that we all face and some people face it more and less, but it's it is kind of like a societal thing. We all experience that to some degree. Um whereas body dysmorphia is you literally you see your body differently mm-hmm. than what it is, right? So those are those are two different and not, and not even like my breasts are a little bit bigger or smaller than I view them, or my weight is a little bit bigger or smaller, or even a lot bigger or smaller. Right. Like people who lose a, a lot of weight, they often see themselves as a bigger size than they actually are. I still do, yeah, yeah. But that's not body dysmorphia, right? So body dysmorphia is where it's so clinically significant that your whole world is wrapped around these perceived flaws. And it's actually an anxiety disorder. It's like picking right. is an anxiety disorder. Picking, right? skin picking yes, is what we're talking right? about. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happens is, say they have a small mole somewhere, that becomes morphed into like a huge birthmark. 
and it prevents the people who have this from actually living out a day-to-day in a clinical Existence. way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I get what you're saying on how everybody has a little bit of a level because of society of body dysmorphia. I see that in theory, uh, but to be part of the DSM as a clinical mental health issue, it has to meet a certain amount of mandates. Right. The DSM is what are the diagnostic, oh, the diagnostic statistical manual of uh, psychiatric disorders. I haven't memorized them, um, but I can get that easily. No, I, I just I, I was curious yeah. if we could just kind of walk through them a little bit. Do you think, or do we think that the LGBT to community is more prone to these body issues, to body dysmorphia, or to just just body issues, like our body issues? I don't think there's been, I haven't seen any studies on that, but I would think that because of what has gone on with the LGBTQ2 plus community, that there is a significant proportion of them who would have body dysmorphia. And I think that also happens if you have more than one, like say people of color, Black people who are queer, they also have a huge um, perception put on them as to what their body should look like, whether not they're ugly and whatnot. And that's an interesting topic as well, because it falls under that pyramid that we talked on the last episode in very different ways than where we sit in social standing. So, and that's that's body look, and that's how we look in our in our bodies. I can't speak to that, but both uh, Jennifer and Keisha can. So just to, I just pulled up the DSM-5, and basically the DSM diagnostic criteria for BDD requires the following. Appearance preoccupations. So the individual must be preoccupied with one or more non-existent or slight defects or flaws in their physical appearance. So it's not like having an overweight or bigger breasts than you'd like. It's actually almost non-existent. Okay, um, the preoccupation is usually operationalized as thinking about the perceived defects for at least an hour a day, adding up all the time they spent throughout the day. Note that distressing or impaired preoccupation with obvious appearance flaws, for example, those that are easily noticeable, is not diagnosed as BDD. Rather, such would be diagnosed as other specific oppressive compulsive disorders, because these. When we're really obsessed about our weight, that is a kind of like an OCD, and it, it causes us to become... So we fall under a different kind of psychological... Yes, category. Okay, category. Okay. Okay. Uh, repetitive behaviors. So to qualify for a diagnosis of BDD at some point during the course of the disorder, the individual must perform repetitive compulsive behaviors in response to the appearance concerns. Like picking or mm-hmm. eyelash pulling. Skin picking, or... hair pulling, eyelash pulling, excessive grooming, mirror checking all the time. There are also compulsions or mental acts, such as comparing one's appearance with that of another person. Note that individuals who meet all diagnostic criteria for BDD, except for this one, are not diagnosed with BDD. Rather, they're diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. So a lot of these body issues may fall under several clinical categories. Yeah, so so there's always signifying um, features of when you're actually diagnosed with a disorder. So what we do is we rule out the other ones. And so for BDD, you actually have to have these repetitive behaviors for it to be considered BDD. Right, okay. And then, of course, 
like we were talking about, the preoccupation must cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, and emotional functioning. This criteria helps differentiate the disorder BDD, which requires treatment from normal appearance concerns, such as being a little bit overweight or, as you were saying, about breast concerns, that type or of Or how stuff. we look at ourselves in the mirror no, yeah. or how we feel about that yes, or yeah. how we shape our days. Yes, which for- is why... It actually has to cause clinically significant impairment. Right. Then we also want to differentiate from eating disorders. So if the parent's preoccupations focus on being too fat or weighing too much, the clinician must determine that these concerns are not better explained by an eating disorder. Like bulimia or... Mm -hmm. Anorexia. Anorexia Mm -hmm. or... If the patient's only appearance concern focuses on excessive fat or weight and the patient's symptoms meet the diagnostic criteria of an eating disorder, then he or she would be diagnosed with that eating disorder, not BDD. However, for example, if diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder are not met, then BDD would be diagnosed. So you, it's a ruling out when we're doing it for right. the mental health functions. Almost like any other health concern. So is that like the end of the continuum type mm-hmm. thing? Because I see, yes. I guess what I was speaking more to is like how uh, people are changing their shape. Like Spanx or this, uh, what were you calling, bubbling? No, pumping. Pumping. Oh, you're talking about pumping. Yeah, yeah. like changing the shapes of our bodies. So if you do that to an more, excessive... If you did it excessively, yeah. then you'd be close to that criteria. Yeah. So well, is it a continuum kind of thing, like where you can get a bit... It seems to me almost everything is. That you can take something too far one way or the other, right? And so the BDD would be that end, like that yes. end line. Yes, exactly. Because it causes you to not be able to function. And so that's really clinically what differentiates it from something on, as you were saying, on your continuum. Yeah. So, like, I have always had body issues of, uh, with my breasts and my butt and my hips and my belly because I have a very African-style body. And growing up, you didn't see very many people looking like me in media, right, white-skinned yeah. people, thin people. So I've always considered myself t- to look bigger than I actually was and didn't feel beautiful for many, many years yeah. as a result of it, that wouldn't call, make me BDD. That would make me have some body conscious issues right. and uh, to the point where it can cause some anxiety or depression in some people. But to meet BDD, it's a, I was saying, say there's a tiny little pimple, you progressively, repetitively think about it. Right. Obsess, obsess about it, which is why it's probably so- obsessive-compulsive spectrum. It it feels like it could be a little bit of a rabbit hole as well, because as we get going from my own personal experiences, as you start changing your body, you go to the gym, you, you are demanded to more of a certain body type for a certain group of people that you want to have sex with. It starts, it starts out small just by going to the gym, but it can end up with steroids and pumping and Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. silicone pumping and with things that are very destructive to your body and it doesn't necessarily have to be so that you can go have sex or get laid but that that no i'm just from my experience that's kind of what it it it, that's what motivates a lot of gay men and i'm just speaking from my own experience from my own existence on the the lgbt2qs spectrum uh i can't speak to everyone else's spectrum i can only speak to mine 
And in my experience with apps like Grinder and Scruff and plenty of fish and our, our dating apps, as we go through life, there's a certain physical demand to be a certain shape, a certain size, a certain look. There's femphobia. There is all kinds of fat phobia. There's then you have the bear culture, otter culture, twink culture. And it's all I don't want to say it's all based around sex, but a lot of it is sexualized. So, well, and I guess what I wanted to say is that in my my experience, it gets exacerbated when I become in a relationship. If I'm single, it's so much easier to deal with. I just float along and it doesn't really matter as much. But as soon as I want to attract someone, then I start to put more demand on myself and considering my physical appearance. But if I'm all on my own, I'm like, I don't give a rat's ass. I'm the exact opposite. See, when I'm in a relationship, I feel more comfortable to eat a little bit differently or... Be with that person a little bit different. Yes, because I'm accepted and loved by somebody. When I'm out of a relationship and I'm trying to attract somebody, I'm at the gym and I'm working it out and I'm I'm eating properly and I'm doing the right things and I or well I don't know right things. I'm doing something (laughs) for my body. I don't know if it's the right thing, but I'm doing something. So well, I guess I mean I objectify myself. More so. And considering, well, did I actually dress nicely today versus just whatever and casual? Did I maybe do my hair? for? Oh, when you're in a relationship, you're saying? Yeah. Or if I'm looking to be in one or if one occurs. So it just it's just the, the driver behind your choice in physical appearance and how you how I make myself up in a day. Right. When, and, when you're in a relationship as opposed to when you're out of a relationship, is that? Yeah. Because most of the time, uh, I don't really care. You're saying if you're if you're at a place in your life where you're comfortable being single or want to be single, yeah. you don't have a desire to attract another person, then you're groovy to just kind of yeah. live your life. Yeah. Groovy. I don't really think about it too much. <laughs> but, yes, I am. Groovy. I Thank love you. groovy. You say, say. <laughs> I you're groovy. But if you're... If you're in a relationship or seeking a relationship, now you feel there's more pressure to look a certain I'm way. I'm more inclined to bring it up a notch. Okay. Yeah, and that makes sense. myself because I want to be a better person when I'm with somebody. It's not like I'm not a great person by myself, but when I'm in and I'm going to choose to be with someone, I want to be the best that I am. Yeah. See, and that's, that's a and great... authentically the best that I am because yeah. this is who I am and what I do. When I'm, not just when I'm putting it on to impress you. So because I'm in a polyamorous relationship and I have several aspects and several fingers to love uh, <laughs> or, or tendrils to love. I don't know. I don't know. Tendrils is not worse or better. No, tendrils is not I have several <laughs> options for love, but not so many options for sex. Oh, that's a big doorway. <laughs> that's a big doorway. <laughs> I am I'm frequently single in that polyamorous relationship because of of our structure of our family structure so our family structure is 
I'm not going to get into it on this podcast too much, but my family structure is I'm in a polyamorous relationship with a straight man who dates several women or has sex with several women. We are in an intimate relationship, but we don't have sex with each other. So we have sex outside of our relationship. So I am frequently getting emotionally served, but not physically served. So I sit on a in a in a position where I am constantly trying to make my body because I love who I am as a human. I just have a hard time looking at in the mirror sometimes. Mm-hmm. So and so I'm I make my life that way. I'm at the gym. I'm eating generally very well uh, or as clean as I can and. I go through that and I, I obsess about the changes that are happening in my body every single day. So, and I think a lot of gay men do that. And a lot of gay men, if they're too skinny, they want to start pumping or with silicone. And that is very dangerous. I have a couple of friends who have done that in the past and have been seriously ill from it. So, and they've changed their bodies in a way that they can't fix now because silicone is silicone. And mm-hmm. That's a dangerous substance as far as I'm aware. So so I, I would like you guys actually to also speak to what it is that is fractured within us that we would negate our own beauty and honor of ourselves. Like but I what, think, where do we get that I, from? I, I think for everybody it's different, but for, I think, a, a black woman from our cellular history, we've been vilified and been given a dichotomy of the black sexualized female because we were brood mares during slave time, and that was not very long ago. No, it wasn't. Um, vilified and as being a person of color because the white, sanctioned, beautiful, idealized female was never a person of color or black. And so for people of color, I think a big part of it comes from our epigenetic trauma and from our slave ancestry and history. There's still, there's so many struggles, but at least when you're reading a magazine, when you're watching TV, you see a fairly diverse range of what white women can look like. And people of color just don't really have that. So right from the time you're quite young and you're watching TV, even in cartoons, you're reading magazines, whatever kind of media you have access to, the representation is so limited for women of color. And not only is it limited, it's stereotyped. And stereotyped, yeah. And stereotyped in a very negative way. And so when you look at yourself in the mirror, not only do you often not feel comfortable in your skin and in your body, you often recognize that society doesn't see you as beautiful or as acceptable. Even in shopping. I mean, I, I am not an obese woman. No. But there's no black mannequins. Well, not only there are no black mannequins, you try and find clothes that are going to fit my booty and my waist. It's very difficult because I have a very hourglass. And is that because the designers aren't making those or or there's no money behind it? There's or huge money behind huge, it. It's, there's got to it, be huge money it, behind it. It has to do with the identification of race and the normal race being the acceptable race being the white Caucasian race. It doesn't have to do with, I mean, they're, the Latin community, the black community, 
uh, there's huge uh, body differences. And when you're raised where you don't see representations of you on billboards, Mm -hmm. in magazines, in TV, it makes it where you all of a sudden become the other and from a physical form place. And so then your idea of beauty changes. We have skin lightening creams, hair straighteners, all these things to chemical straightening, chemical chemical straightening of hair, which I have so many questions about people of color hair. I think a good, another good point with that too, though, is circling back to media. It's probably been in the last two or three years that I've seen when women of color wearing natural hair. So yeah. that's a huge thing, right? And yeah, it's beautiful. It's a, it's it, is, so it is. Beautiful. It is beautiful, it is. but it's that's a long. I mean, that's my whole life. That's my mom's fight. whole life, looking at people with women of color with straightened hair, yeah. which very few of us have naturally. So that's a whole thing in itself too. So I got some, an example when I was training clients. I would have to do body comps which meant not only the circumference with the tape measure, but also the pinch with the calipers. And we would train other trainers uh, because it's so uncomfortable to show, you know, your waist or maybe the back of your shoulder and people are worried about back fat or your hip fat because, of course, we're going for the greatest spots. And there's times where the calipers wouldn't necessarily fit, but it's how I hold my energy and treat it as just a clinical thing to get the information and it's only as a benchmark and then to explain the numbers in a way that they wouldn't become fixated on the certain scale number and what does this lean mass versus body fat mean and what does that actually mean in your body as a machine versus them running with this, I'm 35% body fat, I have 40 pounds of fat on my frame. Well, if you take that in context of your whole body, you're supposed to. If you have estrogen, you're storing, that's storing fat. You're making babies. Like it's supposed to but be that But then that, that goes back to how we perceive Exa- fat yes, and how we perceive much. it sitting on our bodies and how we're perceiving our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Because I see a 40% body fat as a death trap well, in my head. Well, that's where my experience of body dysmorphia in my mind came from because in the weight room, we're trying to change our morphic size. And so they become so stuck in on the mirror and the scale weight or markers that they were doing a change. And you can go just as far into uh, aerobic anorexia as you can into health. Yeah, you can. Right. And so Most that was my experience. Yeah. And so that would be a, an eating, a form of eating disorder mm-hmm. or a obsessive compulsive Not disorder. Not necessarily uh, body dysmorphia. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um I think that all, again, relates back to what societal sees as beautiful and healthy and how we feed off societal images of what is beautiful, internalize that. You have to look at the modeling industry. You have to look at all of it and how men, gay men, women are viewed a certain way. The heterosexual male is viewed a certain way. People of color. And how that all shapes the way we view ourselves in that mirror. So from a gay standpoint, I I know my experience. I often look at the lesbian experience as very different. And I, 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 Keisha, nobody can see, but I'm pointing at you (laughs) for your example. Because 
lesbian, and I know you can't speak to all lesbians, but the lesbian body example is very different than the gay man's body example. Like we are on different spectrums. And it seems like there's a level of comfort in that. And I, I just, is there some clarity there? Is there? Uh, what do you mean a level of well, comfort? Okay. So there's a level of comfort with lesbian women that they are allow themselves to be a little bit heavier, a little bit like how they dress is a little bit more, I don't know. I don't want to say masculine cause it's not, it's more gruff. But that, then you have aspects that is, of, this is the problem, though. This is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> because I am considered a lipstick lesbian, which I didn't. What does yes, that even are. mean? Like, I didn't this know is what the that question was. I'm actually trying to get to without trying to get to. I it. hear him like, the fem, yeah, the feminine lipstick. That passes straight is the problem. So, so because you hold, because I am perceived as more feminine than what the typical lesbian would be. <laughs> Which, what does that mean? Well, like, what does that mean? Yeah. The butch lesbian, like, plow, whatever. Flat, yeah. Birkenstocks. There's all of these stereotypes that if you don't, and if you don't meet those, then you're not considered the same amount of lesbian. Well, I'm yeah, less so, lesbian because so, yeah. I like to have long hair and lipstick. There's lesbian quotients. There's it's gay men quotients and, that we have to come up to. She could be changed you know? back over if she met the right penis. That's right. Ugh. That's right. I might oh, yeah. be able to I have straight. met many penises, penis. and none of them have maybe want to change my attitude about anything. <laughs> really. <laughs> so so that that is a problem that we face, um, I think, in the lesbian community, is there's lots of lesbian women who are, I guess, lipstick lesbians and have all of this pressure to to not look that way or they won't be accepted by their their fellow lesbians. And That's bullshit. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that is it bullshit. is bullshit. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So I It's you just know, another the, way to compartmentalize, I think. I don't it, understand uh, it personally. Well, because I don't understand the bear jealous. otter like we in in the gay community, we have bears, we have otters, we have twinks. And twinks. I, I don't and, know what a bear and an otter is. Okay, other so, than animals. I've heard of a okay. bear. So in our community, a bear is generally a larger man who has a lot uh, of hair. more more body hair, a little rolls. Kind of they eat on a regular basis. <laughs> Go on all fours. Um, they like bigger guys. It's a uh, it, it, they they look like the big hairy guys with the beards and the mustaches and the whole Fuzzy. lumberjack kind of thing. An otter is a skinny version of a bear, basically. I mean that that just wow. yeah. Um, a twink is a very very skinny youngish, so thirty and under male who is pretty hairless, who actively removes hair on a regular basis uh, to look like a twink. Then you have, oh, Jesus, there's there's so many categories, and I, I probably couldn't even name them all. So what category would you fit in? I think the gay community would call me a bear, but I am hairless, like, everywhere. I can't grow hair to save my soul. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I would fall under. See, that's, again, the problem of categorizing, right. compartmentalizing, 
I mean, that fuels the divide. Well, where do I sit? Now, I know what I'm attracted to. So I'm attracted to a muscle body. So I'm attracted to muscle boys. And that fuels my drive to be in the gym. That fuels my drive to be a muscular man. It fuels my drive to lose the weight. It fuels my drive to to be a certain body type because I'm trying to attract a certain type of man. But isn't that why everybody works out or exercises or deals with their... I don't know. I, I don't know why everybody does it. I just know why I do it because I need to get laid. Are like you this. saying that everybody who exercises exercises because they're trying to... Um, no, no, no. Okay. If they're I misunderstood. looking to date, that that's often why they'll work instead of necessarily doing it just for their health. But I don't do that just just with the gym either. I have very special hair routines. I have very special makeup routines that I do. I And I'm talking to two people of color about hair routines. Like, I feel... <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> but he does have hair. I really I seat. really tried not to laugh there. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but because I, I I have a sense that the hair routine that I have is very minimal as to <laughs> but we'll we'll talk about that. But, but <laughs> That's another do, podcast. That's a, you do take some time to I get do. yourself ready. I do. And You've you seen take it. care Tyler, of it in your yeah. appearance. I, I do because hair is a big thing for me. As I'm losing my hair, and I know that I, I am losing my hair, it's apparent. I have tricks and things that plump it up and make it look, you know, 20 years younger. And I'm on certain medications that make me keep my hair. And I look after my hormonal regimen in a very specific way. I have a doctor who helps me with my hormone replacement therapy. So as you, I age and trying to increase my telomeres with science or whatever is perceived as science nowadays, <laughs> I try to, <laughs> well. Thought patterns. And, and I try to, to extend my age in that way or my looks in that way. So. Societal, society's fascination with youth. My, my own fascination with youth, not just. The wisdom just, of age. But doesn't your own fascination with youth have been shaped by societal fascination? It totally has. It is 100%. I have never been able to feel validated physically enough by myself and by society to be able to move through life in a way that makes me feel free all the time. And yeah, to me, that is an issue within our whole uh, being human. But I'm not the only one. There's four people in this room but that who, are affected in that in a very real way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so why is this not looked at by the the world as something? Like, this is a norm? Why is this a, considered a norm? Versus that end of the spectrum or the continu- continuum being the only thing that they consider a disorder. Am I seeing this clear? Like, how is that a norm to that? It's not well, body confidence as a norm. It, it, it's the way we have shaped our society, and our society has shaped mm. us, right? So, a disorder is something very different than how society shapes our anxieties, our way of viewing ourselves in the world. When it gets yes. to the disorder part, it's when it becomes, it impairs your social, occupational vocational, emotional functioning. Like that's the key point where it's crippling to you Mm. is once it hits that 
Yes. Right? And there's always research being done. So the DSM-5, it's had nine restructures because it's always, it'd be five, then then the text revision of it, and then six, right. and then the text revision of it, then seven. So it's always changing as science evolves and as psychology evolves into what's going on. So perhaps one day this won't be considered We're part of the seven that, norms. That, that line of that we can address these sort of things quicker instead of it going to the end of that continuum, then we see it moving. Like with the young folks, like the young trans kids uh, and how they feel about their bodies, I could see if they keep thinking a certain way that, yes, they would end up mm -hmm. down that continuum. So Definitely. how we can move that benchmark that we're being able to address these things in a healthier societal norm. Dealing with our issues just in the, in, in the general LGBTQ community, there's also the trans issues that there is gender dysphoria mixed with body dysmorphia and our mm -hmm. insecurities within or just a trans person with in just body insecurities, just generalized body insecurities. So it, it's so hard to unpack it all because the science still isn't in. The research isn't in. It's so hard to find any kind of stats on mm -hmm. suicide linked to body issues, which from my own experience, suicide and depression are high in the LGBTQ2S De plus. And that is a statistical fact. Yes. It is a statistical fact, but it's not broken down just by society pushing us out of society because that causes depression as well. Uh, being rejected by society gets us depressed as well. But how we look at body issues within our own communities mm -hmm. causes those kinds of issues as well, which is never broken down into a clinical numbers. Like we don't have any stats on no. that. There are no stats that are broken down. There is work being done. The government of Canada is, is trying to break down these, these stats and figuring it out. But half the problem is reporting. Gay, lesbian, transgender people do not report a lot of their issues. They don't identify publicly to the government who they are because of they're afraid of identification or there's all kinds of other factors. They're afraid of their family identification. You know, it's a difficult stat to get, but we know that we are losing people in our community to these things. We know that we are losing people in our community to anorexia. We know that we are losing people in our community to bulimia. We know that we are losing people to to pumping uh, silicone or or whatever drugs, anabolic steroids, whatever drugs are. We're, well, we're losing people and choosing may, perhaps dangerous, promiscuous behaviors for the value. Well, that's a completely different given themselves. Well, that's a completely different. That's a, a topic in and of itself, the sexual promiscuity or, or sexual gratification, just so that we can get a little bit of validation. So, and so I think ultimately what I'd like to point out is, uh, there is a bit of a shift in the way that we see things and there's way more compassion and love being focused now on mental health and the things that we're now bringing to light in these conversations and why we're even talking about this, that it's really about being human. It's not about the color or where you live, that we all exist on this globe and we're all breathing the air. And It is and about being human, human, but it, the best way for us to be human is to figure out 
ask each other questions. I think for, for myself, the best way to stay human is to keep asking these questions and and making the mistakes and and saying stupid shit, which I but also I just them. not. Sometimes I think that it gets a little bit lost when we talk about a generalized human experience because people are inherently different, and the struggles that they face and the things that they go through mm-hmm. are different. So yeah, we are we all are human, and that's fundamentally what we are but our struggles are different our realities are different and a lot of that's based on our sexuality or gender skin color whatever so I don't know I think it's yeah I think that's important to know because it's easy for somebody to say we're all of the human race yeah I don't see gender color sexual orientation but the fact is the person who is well, especially when somebody would say to myself or to Keisha, well, I don't see you as a black person or a person of color. Well, doesn't yeah, that like seem that's like a, a lie? Like that's, well, and that like that's like a compliment, a like because your standard is a white person and so you're basically a white person. So I think... But it feels dishonest and genuine and a them, lie. But for them it is, they're trying to say that they're not racist or they're yes. not homophobic or they're not whatever Whatever, whatever is a Right. And so when I hear doesn't all boil down to us all being human, we're not even close to being there yet. Oh, no. We've had more cutbacks in mental health services and there continue to be cutbacks. So we are not more um, aware of the resources because there are no resources. The government is cutting back resources for all mental health communities, not just the LGBTQ plus No, that's true. It's all social, really. All social social programming. programming. So I feel we have made some gains, but we've also gone backwards in a lot of ways. I feel that that's true as well. I I see that directly happening in Alberta right now. They're having huge cuts, just not in mental health care, but in in medical care across the board. Because money is becoming a driver and has always been a driver. Well, I disagree because I don't necessarily watch the news as much. But of what I've seen on social media, there's way more posts about people being gentle with themselves and an inclusive kind of community. There's still the crap that's going on for sure. And I think our governments aren't necessarily in line with what I see socially grassroots wise. And that's what I'm talking about is more inclusion and more conversation. I'm inherently hopeful. I believe that there's a lot of hope. I, I do that. see change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have hope. As well. and, I, and, I, and I purposely turn the mindful perspective to the hopeful perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I view the world. So I yeah. do see those things. So for every sanctioning against the LGBTQ2 plus community, against people of color, against black people. I also see beautiful moments of humanity. And those moments of humanity are the ones that build my hopefulness. Yes. My thoughtful hopefulness, because coming up as a gay man in the last 30, 40 years, 
uh, we've seen the changes. We've seen what Huge we've been able to changes. do. Beautiful changes. Beautiful changes. Beautiful changes. Wonderful changes. To and and the kids react very differently. The young LGBTQ two spirited people are act react very differently, and it's beautiful to watch. Um, and a little frightening for me to watch because there's a time I'm inherently jealous, and I I fear what they're they're doing to themselves in some way because well, they forgot about the And also you come from you come from the the genetic reality of not being able to be a, a gay person or a queer person because you would be killed. Yeah. Like you would be dragged behind trucks. You would be tied to a fence post and, and left for dead. And we in our age group, yours and mine, we have very concrete memories of that. Oh yes. So for when I look at where we're at now in terms of the LGBTQ plus community, I see beautiful change. I'm not oh, saying no. that there isn't a huge amount that still needs to be done and that there still isn't horrendous problematic behaviors, ideologies, systemic abuses that are happening. But I, I can see the forward movement. I look at past the last... 40 years. And I guess that's what I was just trying to bring up is we're talking about some really heavy stuff that's going on, but I want to also be highlighting that we're all here because we do have some hope. I'd like to speak specifically yeah. for myself, but there is, I do have inherent hope that things are getting better. And by growing my bubble yeah. of light and positive, that'll be able to influence what is going on out there. Well, and more we fuel the light. The lighter that shine, that yeah. light shines. So, which is what's part of this podcast and how we're we're talking to each other. I'd like to kind of circle back to body dysmorphia or or back into the the subject that uh, at hand. Each each segment of the LGBTQ community that we that we look at has their own struggles. And we've talked about lesbian struggles. We didn't get quite as far into it as as all of what we all feel in our in our little bubbles. Bisexuals, pansexuals. There is a completely different model there as well. Uh, Peg's unfortunately not with us today to, to speak to that. But Jennifer, you are. And I just want to ask, is there a variance or do you feel pushed and pulled from all the segments of society in that way? Well, I think pushed and pulled from all segments and also the idea of, of slut shaming, being a slut because you don't identify with one type of orientation or gender. It's about Slut shaming is a... And I think that's a really... Huge, huge part of it for my personal experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is compounded by me being black. And so I think people don't have an understanding of pansexuality. Well, there's an opportunity right there to talk about pansexuality. So for me, and again, this is just my personal view. Of of course. I didn't even know what pansexuality was because it didn't exist when I knew right. that I was interested in everybody's energy. And so it's more, it's less about a body construct or a certain gender. For me, it's more about um, the essence, the energy of that person and how I viscerally, emotionally and spiritually connect with that person. And for me, um, 
personally, and this is my small piece of my pansexuality, is that I am really connecting with a highly intelligent brain. And so it doesn't matter. Is that more saposexual or is that pansexual? Pans, yes. Yeah, for a lot of pansexuals, it, it is about emotional connection, but there is huge a sense physical, of physical piece connection. as well. And right. for me, and I just do, for me, um, what we'd call our heroes, they hold a very important place in my attraction right. because of what they do every day mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about and I don't want to get into on this podcast because it's another podcast I'm not talking about the violence the misogyny the racism that yeah, happens yeah, 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 yeah. In, in first responders but we definitely need to have that conversation yeah absolutely so yeah. but so that I'm not talking about but I'm talking about the idea of the first responder why they go into it who they are and this this savior that they come and they were willing to risk their types and their lives. And there is a whole combination. But there could be a gorgeous female, male, trans, intersex, whatever body. And I won't be as attracted without that mental energetic is a huge emotional connection like that whole uh, there's there's a it's instantaneous. Yeah. It, it, it's 15 instantaneous. seconds, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can. Uh, divine that from a person in 15 seconds so so that whatever that energy is and however we can connect humanly that's it's a human connect that energetic connect that for me as a pansexual obviously the physical form is extremely important to me a very sexual being but that energetic connect is what allows me to feel now that i'm comfortable you would fall in love with i would fall in love with anybody so that must have been a huge personal journey for you right from adolescence all the way up to... I think current. younger than adolescence. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, I think I've always been drawn that way. I have been as well. Like yeah, that. So I'm not pansexual, but I, earlier than adolescence, yeah. I've always been gay man. Yeah, yeah like, but there was no yeah. word for it. There's no definition for it. So I didn't... I didn't understand. Well, we are just learning some of these, like saposexual is uh, only intellect, which negates physicality completely. Yes, that does, that right? does not work for me, right? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> that doesn't work for me either. There's a certain physicality I have to have. Right. right? There's, yeah. But because there was no defining feature of it, in my younger years, you got slut shamed a lot. Slut and then being black on top of it, because black women already are automatically seen as a, a different type of sexuality, a different sexual draw. People have a lot of very pathological fantasies about being with a black woman and what that means and what that looks like. So the combination of two made it sometimes where I was consistently objectified in a very negative way from from all levels of society um, to the point where I was so internalized I didn't even realize it was happening. Right. You know. And that stems, that, that yeah. doesn't that also feed how our body issues return? Definitely. Oh, um, yeah. Because how my sexual encounters from when I was younger, either from abuse or from just knowing people have have shaped my yes. my body image my how i look at the world how i how i move through the world 
for myself, I judge myself on what I believe everybody else sees, which is weird. Like it's a kind of a weird way I think to... that that's how a lot of people. <clears throat> that kind of human condition. Yeah, but I, I, I can, I, there's no way I can see what you, how you see me. There's no way how, you know, I can see how you see me because and, both of you are going to look at me very, very differently. And that's everybody. That's everybody. Everybody, everybody, has that everybody. That, yeah. So then how do we judge ourselves if our mirrors are lying to us? If our mirrors are lying to us in our own heads and we don't know how other people are looking at us. So what loving is kindness and compassion. Love and kindness and compassion. The mind void haze way, radically accepting that this is your form and all of its glory and all of its fragility. And we talk about this a lot in my classes because you're asking people to come and really look at their bodies and how they can move, mm-hmm. which is very intimidating because you're standing in front of a mirror with all of these other people and sometimes your belly's being shown you're often not where you're wearing short sleeves or whatever like you're showing a lot of your body that maybe you've never even looked at before and now I'm asking you to really look at specific parts of your body so how do we yeah like you're gonna look at your chest for 20 minutes because we're moving it and you're gonna look at your midsection for 20 minutes because we're moving it and your hips and, you know, we're talking about your body in a really nope. different way than what we've maybe talked about before. And so we have to, we really... No, you know, I, it's actually, you're talking about this reminds me of the time I went to Keisha's belly dancing class. And you, you are a very good instructor, but that's like... Yeah, so it's really it tough. kind of hell. It, it is really tough. And so <laughs> we talk about it in a few different ways. One... In this class, we're looking at our body and its functions and how we can let go of control so we can regain control and see what it can do for us. And the first six months of that is hell. It's awful. It's really scary. It's really intimidating. And then once you push through that, you would be amazed by what your body can do for you. And suddenly you've got this different level of understanding and of love and appreciation for your body because of that. But to work through that, you kind of have to get to a place of neutrality. So you look at your body, not in a good way, not in a bad way, just as a body and what it can do. And then from there, you go to develop love so and appreciation. So you go down to a, a no Neutrality. Well, then... actually, that's actually, that's, that's going it. up for most people mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. neutrality is coming up from negativity, right? So that's a good point. The next point is about goal weights. So a lot of people join belly dance because they want to lose weight or whatever. And we talk about that a lot too. We're not here to lose weight. We're not here... We're not here as part of our diet program. We talk about that in my yoga class as well. Yeah, we're here to uh, learn to accept and love our body the way it is in its current form. And then if it changes, to do that again. So it's not about uh, restriction in your diet. It's not about losing weight. It's not about toning. It's literally about coming and expressing and dancing and learning to appreciate what your body has for you right now. Uh, I think that you know, uh, and actually in my personal training experience, it's been very challenging at times to get clients to look in the mirror for their form, like just to watch how they're doing an exercise. And I did have a client that refused to look in the mirror, just would not look in the mirror at all. Oh, I have people who look yeah. at their feet while they dance. They're trying to watch their body 
people in my class look at their body not in the mirror, but from looking down. So they'll try and watch what they're doing looking down at their body because the thought of looking at themselves in the mirror is so intimidating. Yeah. Okay, so talking about mirrors, there was this time when I was in my early 20s, and based on a comment I heard from my father about how I'd walked, I chose to take a modeling course. And it was, I found it incredibly challenging because it was a room of mirrors and I was around all these people that were beautiful. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? But I was really determined to move differently. And so to get the courage to do it, I would stop in at the bar on Electric Ave and have four shots because there were dollar shots and then I could move a little easier and they wouldn't be at me all the time. And the worst is trying to walk in heels. And I made it through because I wanted to finish that course. But it was one of those experiences where like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Now, when you say modeling, I see you as a male model. So that's not what you're talking about. No. You, you were modeling as. Uh, I was just learning how to walk. I was just trying to get the As a like, girl? so I didn't walk like a lumberjack. Oh, so that you so that you walked like a female. Well, well, or just not so bouncy and yeah, and and uh, I don't think that it actually worked so well. I did understand the <laughs> question, but I didn't get uh, that comment from my father anymore, which is kind of annoying. Wow. Yeah, but it's it's the body shaming, I guess, it that is. I'm it's trying the body to talk shaming. about, yeah. and how I did that so much myself, and how to train myself out of it. But somebody thought they were helping you. No. Let's talk about makeup and the things that we do on a regular basis, all of us, that we do to enhance our own. Do you use makeup for yourself or do you use makeup for other people? The only makeup I ever use is lipstick and it's 110% for me. Is it? Yeah. I used to wear makeup when I felt that I had to have a warrior's mask on. So I felt that if I had to go and deal with some of the traumatic events in my past, I would make sure I was totally made up. You, like subtly, but totally made up. An and interesting that was, reference, warrior makeup. Well, that's yeah, what, that's that how I felt about my suits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the so only, the same idea, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, but on a daily occurrence, I normally don't wear any makeup at all. Or So lipstick is for you. Mm-hmm. Because it's Why? sexy and fabulous and red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all that. That's and it's nice. all that. That's that's what I want to say. How about for you, makeup? For you. I, I don't wear makeup in my day-to-day life. Like, for a lot of reasons. Uh, mostly because I roll out of bed 20 minutes before I need to be somewhere. <laughs> She's fine. <laughs> Which is why there's an adjustment period in my mornings. <laughs> Because I've been awake for 20 minutes. Um, but for evening podcasts. Yeah, I'm really good in the evening. But she actually, sorry. At 5 p.m. Like she could be like at work all day long in this like dead zone. You know? <laughs> and then 5 p.m. hits and she's like, <laughs> yeah, really productive at 5 p.m. <laughs> um, but it's makeup's an interesting topic for me because I'm a performer, and every right. time I perform, which is really regularly, I wear I wear tons of makeup. I wear foundation, concealer, lipstick, eyeshadow, fake eyelashes, glitter, tons and tons of makeup. 
Personally, I feel fabulous. I love it. I mm-hmm. love getting all dolled up. I um, I really enjoy. It takes me an hour to do my performance makeup, and so I put on a good show. And I have, you know. So it's kind of both for you and for the audience. It's it's entirely for the audience, but I enjoy the process as well. I don't think I would do it if I wasn't being paid to perform. If I if it wasn't my job, I probably wouldn't do it. And I, for actually, for most of my life, I didn't wear makeup to perform. And when I started wearing makeup to perform, I made more money. I made more tips. I was received better. And you know what? It's part of it. It's part of the costume. And I don't actually think that there's a problem with that. No. But it is, it's an interesting thing because my platform is about uh, self-acceptance, neutrality, and love. So it's kind of a tough thing to navigate when you're teaching new performers. It's economy, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, th- you're doing this for you, but you actually are doing it for other people as a performer. So you have to fit in these, you know, you have to do these things to meet those standards. And a lot of that is makeup. For my new performers, I don't, I don't dictate how much makeup they wear. So if they don't want to wear foundation, concealer, they don't have to. If they don't want to wear lots of eyeshadow, then it's something they need to talk about themselves because it's about being uniform. So if the three of them don't want to do it, then they don't have to do it. If they don't want to wear really bright lipstick, they don't have to do it. But once you hit a professional level, yeah, you do have to do those things. So it's kind of, it's a tricky thing to navigate. And it's funny because people don't recognize me in my day to day. So with client meetings, yeah, with client meetings, I'll go and do how I look now, no makeup, casually dressed. I do my client meetings that way. And then I show up to perform completely made up and they do a a double take (laughs) because I look so different. Oh, oh, I didn't recognize you. Yeah, no kidding. Because I'm wearing a different face. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're wearing a, yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting, but I do love the process and I love learning about makeup. I love, I, I love how artistic it can be. And... I love how it makes me feel. I found when that it's done. too with art, uh, with actor makeup as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's show business, right? I yeah. didn't wear makeup at all until I became an actor, and then as as I was getting into my acting chops or getting into it, I realized, oh, you know what? My eyebrows could use a little darkening, so now <laughs> yeah. I go out with I darken my eyebrows or I do my lashes or or whatever just to make my eyes pop. Yeah, because I can do that, and I've seen. So I do it mostly for me. But I also do it for my audience, and I'm using air quotes for audience, so wherever that is. And so I've incorporated makeup into my my cleanup routine. Also, I've got a couple of Louis Vuittons under my eyes that I want to kind of hide, and that makes me feel better as I'm going out. So, yeah, same. Right? Yeah. Like it's just like you want to dab, dab a little yeah. under those and make them even out a little bit. And And having so many friends that do makeup, they've walked me through a lot of this, which is great i think on a personal level taking away from my performance i never have i been a makeup person in (laughs) but um and i've always been really comfortable with that but there was this one moment it's i think it's pretty comical i was meeting a bunch of friends and we were just going to the parrot so i didn't really think much of it and i'll just paint you a picture i was wearing kind of a (laughs) skirt to my knee and it was really patterned this is when i worked at red bag so everything was really patterned some like weird t-shirt i think it said but first lasagna (laughs) on it is purple (laughs) and then knee high (laughs) purple pizza socks (laughs) 
no makeup. I think I was probably teaching class or something, and I stagger in, like, my posture's not very good. I just kind of walk in and sit down. And this table, they're all women, and they're gorgeous. They're wearing beautiful dresses, full faces of makeup, their hair is done. I'm sitting there in my purple pizza socks. And I did have a moment where I thought, oh, maybe I need to pull it together here. <laughs> this is looking a little bit rough. Like there's that, that minute where you're like, ooh. I am underdressed. <laughs> this was a wrong choice for the day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I definitely, I mean, I still, I didn't, I got through it. I was like, whatever, this is where I'm at now. But, but, but you know, um, it was a moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, going back to makeup. Yeah. I, I know most of my life I've been actually against it because of the way that they've marketed it for so long. And it's only lately that it's become about woman self empowerment. Mm-hmm. It's That's always true. been like, yeah. make yourself look better. And yeah. Yeah. I to think of that meme better. that came through yeah. on Facebook lately of like what we've told women all their lives to do, to look better, to do this, do that. And it's like, you know what? These, I find most women, most gorgeous without any makeup. Well, and, and that's it, or true it's a, too. Or an augment. But I think that brings us to our next point. When is it for you and when is it a lie? When is it for you and when is it for someone else? Mm-hmm. So Spanx. Or fake butt forms or fake eyelashes. Because there's a there's a, a part of community in, in gay well, community no, no. who buy underwear that are padded butts. Yeah, it gives them black booty. Gives them oh. is that what we're calling it? Yeah, so that, that's what it is though. Okay. Just just to be serious, the big booty, the big breasts, and the big lips with the itty bitty frame with the white that's features. A, a black. It's an it's an ownership of black. Bodies exactly. and saying, I want to take these specific things. Can I say that? I, I yes. want to take these specific things from what black women look like, but also put it with a European beauty standard. Exactly. And that is why it is so tough to be a woman of color right now. Yes. Because you're only you're supposed to have a big booty, but it has to be round. And you're supposed to have big breasts, but they have to be round. And you have to have an itty bitty waist and you have to have white features in your face. But, but you also want to have big lips. Too, and that's like is that an a cultural appropriation? Like is that or is that just because her body type is that way? Or? Well, th- there is an issue. Some body types are that way. Regardless of color. Regardless, Regardless of color. Of color. Yes. Okay. But the appropriation of the buttocks and the breasts and the lips. Lips. Totally. Especially the lips. Right, the plumping. Are yeah. complete about trying to take the pieces of black culture. That and, are. And form, physically form. And beautiful and put them into a white eurocentric body as a way of morphing that beauty standard for all yes. of us like for well it's a beauty standard it looks beautiful on them but then it takes it it's still not accepted in the black form oh right okay yeah. so that's why I, I, we're saying I, I, about yeah it. okay right okay so that's that's the differential there i when i'm saying if I'm dating a guy with uh, if I if I run into somebody in the bar and they and they've got a nice little butt and we're getting along and everything's great and we get home and his butt falls on the floor. <laughs> 
Exactly. Is that a lie? Like how how are we? Or we were even talking or with bras. There's a two-hour show. Hold on, uh, though, on, on the power of the bra, but and how, and how they've morphed women's breasts to look a certain way. Yes, but yeah. just to circle back here to him taking his butt off. It, <laughs> is that a tight end or a wide receiver? <laughs> it is not fair for you to tell him that he's lying to you about his body because you don't have ownership over his body. No. So no, if I true. choose to wear, a, okay, like my dance costumes, it's funny because my breasts look massive. I, I use shoulder yes, pads. I use shoulder pads in my bra cups. It's a belly dance thing. Most belly dancers have fake breasts. And so then I take it off and people are like kind of looking at me. But my body doesn't belong to anybody. I'm not lying to anybody. Right. I'm and doing that, these things for a reason, and it doesn't include you or anybody else. Yeah, he but could be doing that. So, well, there is no there, line. I, I don't see there is a line. Okay. Um, That's a good point. I, I the reason I'm asking is because so there there is. Sorry. That's okay. Just just to fit like just to put it from the way I'm seeing it is. Women have historically had to have full makeup on, lashes on, pump up the breasts, put in the spangs to make so that they are attractive to a man. Right. Right? If somebody's gotten to the point where we're doing this so they're feeling good about themselves, that's not false advertising. That's saying that every single woman has been social or, 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 or man or man in this case. Yeah. Um, I don't go anywhere without my spangs. Exactly. Right. Like that, they have to be. They have to lie to be considered attractive or socially acceptable. Perhaps they're wearing these things because it makes them feel better, like your Spanx. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So I don't see it as a lie. But Yeah, and it's not because nobody else has control or can... What you're putting on, on my body. body right? And the assumption that what I'm doing with my body <laughs> is to attract somebody else is... An assumption. And it's an the audacity the for yeah. you to assume that is big. Like the it's it's comes back to this ownership thing that's really rooted in us as individuals. And mm -hmm. it's something everybody really needs to work on unpacking. See, I think that's because um, you have a, a perspective coming from people of color. That perspective has never been brought to me. It always feels like. For me, if somebody was wearing the whole chest expander and the butt form and that's how they were going to attract people in the bar and then you get home and they're, you know, skinny twink, well, it feels like false advertising to me. But that is a sense of ownership. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a sense of body ownership that I never looked at before as being the root of that. I've never understood that before as being that. And nobody owns, you don't own me. Nobody owns me. And I never really thought that that's the truth of it. <laughs> the bottom, I mean, that's kind of a, a revelational moment. And <laughs> somebody from my background, what did you call it? The, epigenetics. Epigenetic. Can you explain what epigenetic Please. is? Because it's really so important. Epige so epigenetics is the cellular memories we have been able to track your genetic, epigenetic memories, trauma and resiliency, the way you view the world, back so far to your great-great-grandparents. 
So that is the cellular history that keeps us alive. So cellular memory. Uh, cellular memory, but ancestral cellular memory. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not just your cellular memory of what you've learned. Of humanities. And of humanities learned. and of the global. It's, it's the your specific direct ancestral memory. For example, for me, I never understood, like the first time I, <laughs> the first time I heard a bloodhound bark, I was walking into like a, a parking lot and they did that, that, that bark, that hound bark, that howly yeah, bark. Yeah, like the- and I froze. <gasps> I got sweat popping out of me. I was shaking yeah. that there was no reason for it. Wow. <laughs> as an but individual, as she hasn't had that experience. But my great-grandmother was the first person freed in my family on my dad's side. Uh, so that was truly like an epigenetic memory for me. Right. It's amazing. You that, know? Right, because the bloodhound wouldn't make me react that way. <laughs> except for maybe wanting to feed it. The thing, and it, and it wasn't thing, it wasn't like doing an attack sound or whatnot. It was just like so. That, that was that's a really good example. That yeah. is a really that's good example. epigenetics, and that happens with trauma, but yeah. as you say, with resiliency. Because it, so the trauma is the ones that we've been studying, right? So the trauma goes through us, through to our children, to our children's children, to our children's children, children. But if the trauma is going through resiliency and strength and the warrior self and the kind self have to be going through as well. Do we have any reference material for that that we can put on the website so that people can actually link can, to that? I can. Yeah. Oh, great. If absolutely. you give me that. We have to wrap this up. Thank you all for, for coming. Yes, your time is very much appreciated and your points of view and what you brought in. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us on this episode of Under the Pink Triangle. I'd like to thank Kevin from Audio Junkie Music for once again being our sound director for this episode. We reside in the beautiful Okanagan Valley and are privileged to support the LGBTQ2S plus programs and events in this area. 